So this is the second of Paul's prayers in the letter to the Ephesians. And you'll remember the first we spent some weeks studying, it came at the end of chapter 1, the first prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians was a prayer that they would know more of the giver, that is God, and the gift. And Paul prayed that prayer at the end of chapter 1 in light of what he had just written, that long opening eulogy where he explains to the Ephesians, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You lack Nothing, spiritually speaking, you're the richest people on the earth. His prayer was not that their circumstances would change. His prayer was not that anything around them pertaining to their physical well-being would improve. His priority was simply that they would know more of the God who has given to them these gifts, and they would apprehend more fully what is the gift. In a similar way, as we come to this second prayer in the letter, Paul is leaning into all that he has just written in chapters 2 and 3. He is responding to the truths that he has just communicated and formulating in response an appropriate prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. At the same time, he's looking forward and he's anticipating what's about to come in chapter 4, not least one command after another as he seeks to give feet to their faith. Having spoken extensively in chapters 2 and 3 about the unity that these believers have in Christ and anticipating the commands that he'll issue in the second half of the letter, this prayer acts very much as a bridge between the two sections. Paul, as it were, lays his hand on chapters 2 and 3 and the doctrines therein. He puts his other hand on chapters 4, 5, and 6, and as a means of getting from one to the other, he says, this is my prayer for you. It's intended to be a prayer that facilitates their faith, actualizes or realizes their faith in Christ very much in a, in a practical manner in the church. His prayer, in essence, is for strength, spiritual strength, strength to apprehend more fully what is the love of Christ? Paul's prayer is that they would be strengthened so as to more fully apprehend the love of Christ so that with the end result of them better representing God to one another. You see at the end of verse 19 there, Paul uses that language again of filling it's not the first time we've seen that in Ephesians. His desire is that they would be filled with the fullness of God. In essence, that they would better represent God to one another. 
They would be faithful in their understanding of God and their portrayal of God as they go about life with one another in the congregation. How might they get there? They need spiritual strength to apprehend the love of Christ. Now, before we jump into the text, the question that we need to think through is what purpose this prayer would have in our lives, why would God cause this prayer to be recorded in Scripture, why would we be studying it this evening, thousands of years after it was originally written, why does God deem that we need to give attention to Paul's prayer, very simply so that it can teach us how to pray? There are lessons in here about how we might conduct ourselves, but above and beyond those lessons, it is to be an example for us of how we ought to be praying. What do you pray for? How do you think about going to the Lord in prayer? We learn tonight that of the utmost importance is our prayer for spiritual strength. That we ought to be praying for ourselves and for one another for God to strengthen us spiritually in our inner being so that we would all further apprehend the riches of Christ's love for us in order that we would better represent the character of God to one another. So may this be an instruction to us, particularly as it relates to our prayers. Now, I want to just ask some questions of the text, three in particular, as a way of working through it, beginning with the question of to whom Paul is praying. Who's he going to in prayer? Who's he asking these requests from? To whom is he praying? And the answer, very simply, is his Father in heaven. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. But notice, even there, how he describes our Father in heaven. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul opens his prayer with this dynamic of submission, of humility before God as he draws reference to him bowing his knees. He asserts himself to be not God. You are God and I am not. And for that reason, I come before you bowing my knees in humility. And then he appeals to God the Father as the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Why would he describe God in that way? Well, the concept of naming is taken from the Old Testament and is always a a prerogative of the one who has authority. To name is to assert your lordship over something or someone. So think back to the garden and God said to Adam, you have the privilege of naming everything in the created order. And that was God saying to Adam, you preside over 
the created order. I've set you up as my representative and you sit above the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. You get to name them. Notice Adam didn't name himself. God named Adam, asserting his lordship over him. Fast forward to Genesis 11 and those rascals at Babel. They're now building a tower. Why? To make a name for themselves. It's a loaded phrase that we read there. The point is they don't want to sit under the authority of God. So they seek to make a name for themselves. To come out under His Lordship and designate themselves their own God. Drawing on this notion, Paul says... I bow my knees in submission and humility before my Father in heaven, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He is, as he enters into this prayer, asserting God's authority over him and indeed every family in heaven and on earth. Now why is this important? Why is it significant? Why might we pause to consider simply the manner in which Paul addresses God at the start of his prayer because the way in which you approach God determines the manner in which you pray. The way in which you approach God determines the manner in which you pray. If you acknowledge as you begin your prayers his authority, his lordship, his absolute sovereignty over all of creation, that will affect what you ask for and how you ask for it. It will temper your spirit. It will lead you to approach him in humility, acknowledging that you have no right to come to him apart from the blood of Christ. It will lead you to consider specifically what it is you might bring before Him. You would pause before you bring any request of your heart to Him, thinking very carefully about who it is you are asking from, and I believe it would prompt you to ask in faith. As you come before God acknowledging who He is and who you are, you're more likely to ask in faith with confidence that this God hears you and is able to answer. If you approach him as just a chum, some guy that gets to listen to you as you speak, in like manner, that affects the way you pray. It changes what you ask for and how you ask for it. Your heart is not now so confident that your prayers are being heard or that God is able to answer. It changes your prayer life. We do well to imitate Paul as he enters into prayer simply acknowledging the authority, the majesty, and the power that resides with our Father in heaven. Now from there, we see the request that Paul's offered that Paul offers, what is he asking for? 
He's asking for spiritual strength. He asks from his Father in heaven, and what does he ask for? He asks for spiritual strength. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he, the Father in heaven, may grant you, the Christians there in Ephesus, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. When Paul comes to the Father and makes this petition, he is doing so anticipating that God will answer. And he will answer not in a fleeting manner, nor in a manner that is superficial. Notice he comes according to the riches of God's glory. That's the, the well, Paul. That's the reservoir that Paul wants to dip into through his prayers. He wants to draw from that reservoir the riches of God's glory from there, according to those riches. And then he prays for strength, and it is not a physical strength that Paul is asking for. It's a spiritual strength in your inner being. It's not physical, nor is it fleeting. He prays for a spiritual strength and lasting strengthening. That the Christians in Ephesus would be built up in their very souls, in their inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now what does Paul mean there, verse 17? He wants this strengthening to happen with the outworking result that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. As the Christians are strengthened, the result is that Christ dwells. He's not praying a prayer for salvation. That is not what Paul is asking. Writing to believers in Ephesus. In fact, in the next half of verse 17, he acknowledges, you are rooted and grounded in love. The salvific work, the new birth, has taken effect in your lives. I'm not praying for salvation here. So then what does it mean when Christ dwells in your heart, when Paul asks for that? Perhaps an illustration would help, actually taken from Don Carson's book on Paul's prayers. Imagine a young couple, newly married, they set out on their married life together, and the first few years they live in a particularly frugal way, saving up every penny they can, in order that after a few years of being together, they're able to put down a deposit to purchase a house. Now, the house that they purchase is not by any means the home of their dreams has many issues, it's a lot smaller than they would like, it's not in the area that they would choose, the carpets need replacing, the walls need painted, there are many, many repairs that have to take place, it's a house, not of their dreams, but they're thankful. A few years pass, they continue to live frugally, saving as much as they can, and in so doing, they can then start to make those changes. 
They replace the carpets, they paint the walls, they affect the repairs. A few years pass, and now it's very much their home. They love this home. They love to welcome people into their home. They're proud of it. They're thankful for it. It's no longer a house, but a home. In the same way as Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts, the idea is not a prayer for salvation, but rather that Christ would be pleased to dwell in our hearts and that in turn He would be the controlling influence of our thoughts and our actions. Christ is in our hearts through faith by way of the work of salvation, but Paul prays for spiritual strength such that we would conduct ourselves in such a manner that Christ would delight to be there. He would not be there seeing all the sin that is not dealt with. He would not be there seeing the repeated behavior that doesn't honor Him, but He would dwell there, fully pleased to be there because of the life that we live that honors Him. It is a prayer that Christ would dwell joyfully in our hearts. So the question is, why then do we need strength for Christ to do that? And that brings into view the ongoing work of sanctification in our lives. For Christ to dwell in our hearts in the sense that Paul is praying here in verse 17, we need spiritual strength to pursue the work of sanctification. In order for Christ to dwell in this way in our hearts, joyfully, He has taken up residence there, and we delight to have Him as the controlling influence in our minds and in our words and our behavior, it necessitates that we pursue diligently the work of sanctification. That is why Paul says you need strength. In order for Christ to dwell in our hearts, we need the strength that is required to pursue sanctification. Now understand, sanctification is a, is a two-fold work. God is involved and we are involved. He is responsible and will fulfill His obligation, or I should say His commitment, to sanctify us. But He puts a responsibility on us at the same time. Whereas our salvation is affected wholly by God, our sanctification requires that we pursue it diligently. Led by God's grace, fueled by God's Spirit, we have a responsibility to pursue our sanctification. And that is why we need spiritual strength if Christ is to dwell in our hearts. We need spiritual strength to take hold of what Skugel calls in his book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. He says we have to take hold of the divine life. We seize every day the divine life that is the life that is centered upon Christ. It is not a life whereby we have acknowledged the sufficiency of Christ to make a payment for our sins. 
And then thereafter we give very few thoughts to Him. That is not the divine life. The life that God desires for us to live is one that is daily seizing hold of His grace and walking in obedience. The strength for which Paul prays works itself out very, very simply in spending time with God in His Word. Spending time with God in prayer and spending time with God through the church. It's a very simple plan that God has given for us to pursue our sanctification. Now there are specifics, there are many particulars that the New Testament gives us by way of its many commands, but as a foundation to pursue that divine life, to take hold of Christ, is to spend time with Him through His Word and prayer and with the saints. And as we do that, as God gives us strength to pursue those simple disciplines, Christ dwells in our hearts. He makes His home there. He is pleased to be there. He delights in the life that you are living. I remember when I was first saved, age 21, new to me, with every Christian discipline. It was entirely new to me to think that I might spend some time every day reading this book. It was a new idea to think that I might go to the Lord in prayer and to do so consistently, carving out time and planning time in my schedule to simply be in communion with God. The notion that going to be with God's people on the Lord's Day was a discipline to be pursued was a new idea. Thankfully, I had many mature Christians around me who were exemplifying the pursuit of these disciplines and in them Christ had made His home and Christ was magnified through them. I remember one young man that the Lord had placed in my life at that time. He was a Korean student at the university. His name was Joseph. Our rooms were adjacent to one another, and as he knew that I had recently been saved, he took it upon himself to knock on my door every morning very early with a bowl of hot oatmeal, and we would sit together and have breakfast he would ask me about my day, and then he'd pray for me. I remember as a brand new believer, being astounded at how Christ was magnified in him. Prior to any wish, prior to any desire that he might speak, he would simply say, if the Lord wills. I remember one conversation I had with him. We were speaking about another brother who had fallen into sin. And I just asked him what his thoughts were. What, what do you make of this? And I was just astounded at the 
fear of the Lord that was in this young man as he prefaced his comments with a quick prayer out loud, Lord, if I am mistaken in this respect, have mercy on me. Christ was dwelling in his heart. Christ was magnified through him and the immediate point of application would simply be to ask whether Christ is dwelling in your heart, whether he's pleased to be there, whether you are living such a life that Christ has taken up residence in your heart such that he is the controlling influence in your thoughts and your speech and your behavior. But I think more than that, from this text, the application would be whether you're praying for these things. Are you praying for God to give you strength through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Put aside all earthly pressures and worries and cares. As you come to the Lord in prayer, just for a few minutes, put aside the earthly pressures and worries and cares. And pray the prayer that God has given us in His Word. Specifically, knowing that He knows everything pertaining to your circumstances, put those aside and say, God, would you strengthen me in my inner being so that Christ would dwell in my heart through faith? Would you pray that not only for yourself, would you pray this prayer for one another? Remember, Paul is writing here to the church in Ephesus. And I believe as Paul writes these words, he anticipates the outworking of this prayer within the church as a whole. Not so much whether Christ is dwelling in your heart individually by faith, but collectively is Christ magnified in this congregation. I believe that's the target that Paul has as he prays this prayer for the congregation to be strengthened. There is an instruction simply considering the corporate nature by which this letter would have been received. Would you pray... In the days and the weeks and the months to come, would you pray that God would strengthen this congregation in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith? That He would be pleased to be amongst us. And He would be pleased to be magnified through us. Now, why does Paul pray for this? Third question this evening, who is Paul praying to? For what is he asking? Why is he asking this? He goes on, second half of verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I have really wrestled this week with this text simply in trying to think through how best to break it down because Paul says so much in just a few verses. And there is, if you like, this chain of thought that he lays out for us. He's praying this with the effect of this in order that this would happen so that, and it seemingly goes on and on, but if I can summarize, Paul is praying for this strengthening work in order that Christ may dwell in their hearts so that in His dwelling in their hearts, they would further more fully comprehend His love so that they would better represent God. Now let's just work through that. Notice he employs two metaphors, one agricultural, one pertaining to architecture. You are rooted. There's the agricultural metaphor. You're rooted and you are grounded, speaking of the foundations of a building. And then, with those metaphors in view, those things are true of you. You have been saved and you know something of the love of Christ in the gospel. With those things in place, verse 18, my desire is that as Christ comes into your hearts and dwells there, you would further, more fully comprehend the vastness of God's love. With all the saints, you would more fully see the breadth of it and the length of it and the height of it and the depth of it, that you would increase in your knowledge of it, that you would grow in your understanding of the love of Christ. The idea is you have received it. With eyes of faith, it is there present in your Heart, now I want for you to know it in its fullness. My prayer is that you would grasp something of the enormity of Christ. That you would keep running headlong into the ocean that is Christ's love. And you would grow in your estimation of just how vast it is. So you see how the relationship works. Christ your heart. He is pleased to call it his home. And as he dwells there, you grow in your understanding of him and his love for you. This is why those that are not pursuing their sanctification, whose hearts Christ is not magnified in, have the lowest estimation of his love. When you don't pursue the work of sanctification, when Christ is not magnified through you, it is no surprise that you have a very small estimation of his love. Because he is not the controlling thought in your 
mind and in your behavior and your words and your actions, you really have not explored the extent to which the Bible tells us He loves us. You haven't explored the oceans of His love. You haven't basked in the glory of the gospel, coming to understand just how wonderful is the love of Christ displayed for us at the cross. It is when you pursue the work of sanctification such that Christ is formed in you that you begin to grow in just how rich is His love towards us. And the love of Christ, wonderfully, Paul says, is one that surpasses knowledge. I love the intentional juxtaposition that he establishes in verse 19. I pray that you would know the unknowable thing. My prayer is that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Meaning it really is a never-ending pursuit. We can pursue a knowledge of Christ's love for all eternity. We will not reach the bottom of it. We will not exhaust it, but we will be greatly satisfied as we come to know more and more of it. And so, again, the point is that we would be praying for such realities. That we would be praying for ourselves and one another for a strengthening work so that through our persistence and perseverance, Christ would be formed in us, in His being formed in us, our knowledge would increase of His love. Now we still haven't got to why Paul is concerned to pray for all of these realities. Why is Paul so concerned that the Ephesians would know more of Christ's love? And the answer is the very last clause of the prayer, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is the end result. That's Paul's final desire that he gives in the prayer. Notice, he is, in essence, boiling down the fullness of God to this one attribute, namely the love of Christ. He wants the Christians in Ephesus to be filled with the fullness of God. And what does that look like? It looks like a vast apprehension of the love of Christ. So why is that his request? Again, this prayer forms a bridge between chapters 2 and 3 and 4, 5, and 6. In essence, it mirrors the prayer at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, this is who you are. I'm just praying you would know it. This is who you are by virtue of being in Christ. This eulogy is yours to claim. My prayer is that you would know these realities. Paul's second prayer at the end of chapter 3, this is who you are. Chapters 2 and 3, this is who you are. Together in Christ, united into one new creation, now worshipping the same God around the same throne of grace, this is who you are. My prayer is that you would know it 
Specifically, that you would see in this unifying work an expression and outworking of the love of Christ so that you would more faithfully represent God to one another. You see why Paul is so concerned for every believer in that church, in this church, to be filled with the fullness of God? Because all of the imperatives that we're about to study are centered around life in the local church. He wants us to be practicing these commands when we do life with one another. Certainly we practice them all the time, whether at church or not, but the emphasis is that as they come together, they would be obedient to the commands of Scripture and they would be fulfilling God's plan for the local church. So in a preparatory manner, as Paul is preparing them for the commands that will quickly follow, he prays for them. More than anything, I want the fullness of God to be in you. Specifically, that you would abound in your knowledge of Christ's love. Because that is how you will be obedient to the commands of Scripture. So just think about that reality. How will you be obedient to the commands of Scripture in the life of the local church? And the answer is through a steadfast apprehension of the love of Christ. As you take in more the love of Christ, Christ come to you through the gospel, you will be equipped to obey his word, particularly in the life of the local church. So our prayer needs to be exactly this one. Not simply because we're about to move into the second half of the letter, though it is true the very best way you can prepare yourselves for our study of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is to pray this prayer. I truly believe that. The very best way you can prepare yourself for the second half of this letter is to pray this prayer for yourself and for one another. But moreover, simply so as to be found faithful as a member of the local church, to be found faithful as one who has been called with a wonderful calling, you need to pray this prayer regularly that God would strengthen you, that Christ would take up residence joyfully in your heart, that He would be formed in you so that in His dwelling in your hearts, you would comprehend His love and in comprehending His love, you would be filled with the fullness of God. That is when you are positioned for obedience to the commands of Scripture. So would you pray with me now Paul's prayer to the Ephesians? Our Father, we bow our knees before you. Our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant 
us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.